Welcome to Sounds Japanese Canadian to Me, coming to you from the vault at the Nikkei National Museum. I'm Raymond Nakamura. And I'm Alexis Jensen. What are we going to talk about today? We are talking about the BC Security Commission. Oh, but not to be confused with the BC Securities Commission, which has to do with money and financial finagling or something. That is correct. This is about the government body that was put together to um, evacuate the Japanese Canadians during World War II. Evacuate. I love those kinds of terminologies, <laughs> like they're being saved. And I suppose at the time they put it in that kind of tech context, but anyhow, yes. we'll, we'll get back to that. So who were the BC Security Commission? They were created by the federal government through Orders in Council 1665 and 1666 on March 4th, 1942, which was four months after Pearl Harbor. Which is important, and not the movie. Well, I mean, it's <laughs> it's dealing with, of course, the Japanese bombing of Hawaii there. And uh, so everyone was freaked out, and this was their action to deal with removing the Japanese, everybody of Japanese race, as they actually use that terminology, from what was called the protected area, about 100 miles or 160 kilometers along the coast. And their authority entailed making regulations and governing the control and supervision of people of Japanese origin residing in Canada. So this included people who were uh, naturalized Canadians and also people who were born in Canada, although the actions towards them uh, tended to vary over time. Eventually, they all got clumped into one category. Yeah. Uh, so their authority, though, wasn't absolute. They had to defer to the minister, and it was more of an operational body, I guess. Yes, they were allowed to advise the government but not dictate. Uh, so their duties were to uproot, well, not necessarily all 23,000, but there were about 23,000 people of Japanese descent, and ultimately, in some way or another, they were going to be affected. It was supposed to do it with a minimum of discomfort, whatever that means, and they were to organize and supervise the removal and relocation of them. So, as I was mentioning before, from the protected area, and tied in with this to set up housing and welfare programs so I didn't realize for a long time that they were having to deal with finding jobs for them as well, for them to be able to, to work and uh, ways to have the kids educated. There was some controversy about that. And also looking after the sick, there was the, the TB centers uh, and, and issues related to that. So it wasn't exactly supposed to be a prison. It was sort of this in-between thing. Yeah, it was almost like creating a little community that was guarded by the government, it seems. And just to give you an idea of how the government was working, um, there were other government structures involved, so I'll try and give you an overview of what that is. And working in tandem with the British Columbia Security Commission to deal with the Japanese items that were left behind, that means the objects that were left because people were only allowed to bring 150 pounds or 75 pounds if you were a child to the camps and so the other government bodies were the Japanese Fishing Vessels Disposal Committee which actually began before the BC Security Commission and dealt with dealt with the selling off of fishing boats because many Japanese and Japanese Canadians were fishermen and then you have the custodian of alien property and that was created at the exact same time as the BC Security Commission and it dealt with selling off real estate, personal effects, businesses and farms. Initially it was supposed to be just a protective measure and that's what the, the Japanese Canadians were assuming and then later on uh, this 
dealing of it turned out to be selling off their stuff, which they hadn't planned on. Yes, and they sold the stuff off, and then they used that money to pay for them in the internment camps. They doled out um, basically allowances, and that was from their sold item. And so other departments that were involved in helping with the removal of the Japanese included the Department of Minister and Labor, sorry, the Department of Justice and Labor, Department of Defense, Department of Welfare, Department of Mines and Resources, and the Treasury Department as well as clerical staff at the bottom, which was mainly made up of Japanese themselves, though many of the Japanese members were greatly opposed to helping. And in some cases, this caused strife in between families, with younger generations wanting to help from within and older generations being upset that they were helping who they perceived as the enemy. I saw some description of them being called Inu, which means dog, to give you a sense I mean, if you don't like dogs, uh, then to give you a sense of uh, what the thought of some of these Issei in particular were. And so this structure is quite complicated, so we will draw a diagram and put it up on the Nikkei National Museum's website under podcasts for you to go look at it if you want. And if the sounds of our voices isn't enough and you need pictures. Yeah. So the the committee itself, there were three main uh, administrators, and then they had a, an advisory committee of, of 21 people. So the three main people were Austin Taylor, uh, um, Frederick J. Meade, and John Shuress. And so Austin Taylor had been involved with government issues before in the First World War. He was a super rich guy. He was involved with gold mine at, at Braylorn, and he, he had one of the fanciest houses in Vancouver. And so his name came up, I guess, as being somebody competent. Apparently, he wasn't really doing this for salary and was doing this as a commitment to the, the country. Now, it should be noted that he was part of this previously uh, Citizens Defense Committee, which was advocating for the removal of Japanese, so that gives you a little bit of a sense of his priorities. The Meade person, he was representing the RCMP and was involved with security matters, and it actually recommended that the Japanese would not be a threat. The interesting thing about that is is he had this connection with Etsuji Mori, who was either a gangster or a, a community leader, depending on your point of view. But that was his uh, connection to the Japanese-Canadian community. It, it should be said that he was trying to make sure that conditions were as acceptable as possible, I guess. And later on, after the commission was dismantled, he made a list of people who he considered anti-Japanese so that the government would know who maybe should not be in these positions of power. And Shiraz was a representative of the provincial police, and I hadn't actually heard of them before, but they were in action since the the gold rush days of policing the province. So it seems like they had all this infrastructure already for being able to make things happen. So those are the people? Those are the main ones, yeah. And interestingly enough, when we were researching this, we actually had the grandson of uh, Mead call us, and he's going to be donating something to the museum. So I just thought that was pretty happenstance. And what did he happen to say about his grandfather? Um, He said that he was a person who was stuck in a position, and he could have... He felt a bit guilty about what his grandfather did, but... At the same time, he said his grandfather was a very noble person, and he didn't he didn't have anything against Japanese or Japanese Canadian, but he was just stuck in this position. And yes, he could have quit as a way of saying something, but 
it was just the circumstances and the times. Right. Yeah. So it seems of of the three, certainly Meade uh, appears to be the most sympathetic. And and in terms of the behavior of the RCMP, you often hear of relatively positive things from people who are at camps. Yeah. It's not like they're being tortured specifically. No, they seemed, the RCMP seemed to have held back right until the orders and councils came into play and then they had to move because the government was forcing them to. That's what I seem to get from all the readings we've been doing. Mm Mm-hmm. So now we're going to talk about how the removal occurred, and we are going to work our way through chronologically. So what happened first were road camps were set up, and men between the ages of 18 and 45 were ordered to arrive at their local RCMP offices on March 16th and were told what section of the road they would be assigned to. This project was run by the Department of Mines and Resources. There were 1,500 men in total who were sent, And the downside of this was they were separated from their families, but the food was quite good. And that might seem like a little thing, but in comparison to what we'll talk about next, the food seems pretty important, especially during wartime. So I guess there was also this um, issue of, at the very beginning, it was just the Japanese nationals who were being dealt with, and then gradually these things spread as to who who was affected. And uh, the separation of families did become quite an important point for uh, people opposing the, the treatment to them, but it carried on for some time, even though they weren't too happy about having to do that. The other big... Effort. It's interesting that it is under the Labor Department. It's like they were looking for cheap labor, basically. And uh, the sugar beet farming was a big thing back then, and they needed more help. I don't really know a lot about getting the sugar from the sugar beets, but uh, that was a lot of hard work. And then they got people who already had been farmers in places like Haney and Mission, and uh, a lot of them were berry farmers, and they were renowned for their ability to produce all these strawberries and it's quite painstaking kind of work to do strawberries so when they went out to sugar beet farms they thought it was a a good fit so that you have these people already accustomed to agriculture although it wasn't always the case Uh, the option in this situation was that they could keep the families together and so some people preferred that although i have heard a lot of stories of how difficult it was so among the people that were sent out 2,588 went to South Alberta, 1,053 went to Manitoba, and 350 went to Ontario. So so they were getting sent beyond the borders of of BC. And for some people, that was part of the motivation was to spread them out. So, and just to clarify, when you talk about the Department of Labor, you mean that the BC Security Commission is under the Department of Labor? Right, yeah. So they they were answering to that minister. Okay, so that's who their direct governing body. That's what I understand. Okay. So the third thing that happened was they set up Hastings Park, and Hastings Park is basically racetrack area in in the east of Vancouver that housed horses and livestock, and these buildings were then used for living quarters for the people of Japanese race. So what happened is people from the coast were mainly pulled away because they seemed to be the most threatening, according to the government, and they were brought into Hastings Park and held there while the internment camps were being found and prepared. Have you ever been there for the pig races or something? I haven't been for the pig races. I've been for horse races. Inside that that part? The The the, racetrack part. 
but it, which is away from it, right? Yeah, they, yeah. they have the livestock buildings during the P&E, you go in there. And um, that's, a lot of people, you hear stories, that was the worst part of it, going into Hastings Park. Because it's amazing how quickly they had to do the conversion. Basically, after the announcement in, in uh, March 4th, within a couple of weeks, they started getting people in there. So they, they cleared out the animals, but they didn't quite clean up the place because so many people talked about the smell of it, and they had to build all these bunks and, and have the, the straw stuffed in to make the mattresses and so on. So that was quite a, a fast conversion. I don't know if it's related, but interesting that Austin Taylor, the head of committee later, was involved with horse racing. But um, huh, I didn't know that. No, I don't know if that has anything to do with it. <laughs> So 8,000 people went through it over this period of time, mostly from the coast. And I'd always wondered why my mom, who was living in Vancouver at the time, didn't have to go to Hastings Park. And my dad, who had been in Victoria, did. And so I see now that it was because they were specifically targeting the, the people on the coast. And there was about 1,500 women using 10 shower stalls. Uh, so that wasn't... A good situation. You can see pictures there where there are the, the food troughs that are still being used for, for washing and other things. The food was supposed to be not so good and there were some revolts when people started getting ill and, and they didn't like the food. It's interesting in the report by the commission, they seem quite pleased about how things went, that they were able to somehow feed them on nine cents per meal, that this was quite an accomplishment. So they started trying to improve conditions for the time that they were there, setting up a, a hospital wing and a school area. Gradually, they were getting transported out into the interior on trains, and, and the holding station eventually closed up on September 30th in 1942. And so there were six Bain camps that were set up by the BC Security Commission, and there were also other camps, but the main ones were the, are the following. Uh, and so one of them was Greenwood, which about 1,177 people went there. It's, it is like a sort of a ghost town, and they still have a museum there now. Like a lot of the old buildings are still there. It was used in the filming of Snow Falling on Cedars uh, to look like an old town from that time because it's still that way. And so some of these buildings were converted so that people could live in them. The, a lot of people from Steveston, so the fishing community, all decided to go en masse there. And, and the mayor was open to having people as a possibility of boosting their population and, and possible economic situation. But they were had to add the septic and drainage pipes to deal with the, the large number of new people coming. So the second camp was in Caslow, and 964 Japanese or Japanese-Canadians went to here. There were no new structures built. They renovated 52 structures there. And the BC Security Commission improved the waste management and set up gardens to grow vegetables, as well as allowed um, Japanese people to fish uh, extra rather than just what was allowed. So they they discussed it with the Department of Fisheries and allowed them to fish all year round and to be able to smoke the fish so they had meat to eat. And uh, I guess we sh this is sort of a diversion, but the, the newspaper, the New Canadian, ended up going to Caslow. So that was sort of co-opted by the Security Commission as a means of communicating to the Japanese Canadians, which it had been a, a community newspaper and then it became used for dissemination of information during the war. 
Sandin was another place, 933 people, mostly Buddhists who went there, and they renovated some old structures. It's sort of a funny town with this stream running down the main street, and they, they build things across it. So I guess their sewage worked well enough because they just dumped it into the stream. It's quite steep, and so I'd heard about how extra cold it was because the hills go up so high the sun doesn't come up until much later, and, and so a lot of people talked about how cold it was there. It used to be a silver mining area. Yeah, I could see it. I love sand, and it feels eerie there. And people say that you can hear like um, piano playing in the stream, where there's no pianos playing around from because it used to be a I don't a silver. It yeah, was silver like one of those boom yeah. towns that then just disappeared and had twenty people left in it. And then the next one uh, is New Denver, and fifteen hundred and five people were sent there, and there was a building campaign that was put in place by the BC Security Commission, and they supplied the materials while the Japanese and Japanese Canadians built the 275 rudimentary homes. And they are rudimentary. Two families would share, I can't remember what the measurements are, but I've walked in them. There's a few left in New Denver that you can go tour at the internment center there. And as much as New Denver is beautiful, it would be hard to live in those places year-round. A funny thing was, when I went to that place that, where they have the museum, and they had one of those, I, I went there with my dad, and he said it seemed bigger than he remembered. And mm-hmm. it might be because it didn't have any stuff in it, that it's, it's just the, the rafters going up, and, and when they actually had the beds and everything packed in there. It was Well, and probably the 10 to 12 people who were also packed yeah, well, in there. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Yeah. So, yeah, New Denver, and then not so far away, there was Slocan City and the area... There are a couple of farms, about 4,814 people went there. They had, in Slocan City, it's it's kind of an overstatement to call it a city. It's, it's a little town, but uh, they had 49 old buildings that were renovated, and then there were 629 new dwellings. Uh, in the neighboring areas, there were farms that were converted, Bay Farm, and my, my dad was at Popoff, which was named for a uh, uh, Dukabor farmer who was there. And then the other main one was Lemon Creek within the Slocan area. Right, yeah. And then the last camp was Tashmi, and there was 2,636 people that were sent there. And it was the last camp to be populated. And it was away from the other ones, which which are situated in the Kootenai area. This one is near Hope, B.C., and it was mainly populated with Japanese nationals. They built 347 new houses there and used old barns for different structures. And in addition, the BC Security Commission set up a butcher shop, cookhouses, mess halls, bathhouses, laundries, and a general store. And the idea was that they thought sticking all the Japanese nationals as close as they can to the coast, it was easier to transport them and send them back home as they had planned. So that's why they were away from the ones in the Kootenays, which is about an eight-hour to nine-hour drive nowadays from Vancouver. Is that long? Okay. Yeah, it's far. Uh, the weird thing about Tashmi is how they named it from the first names or the last, the first two letters of the last names of the commissioners of the security commission. So TA for Taylor, SH for Shiraz, and ME for Mead. And I've seen, the, usually it just says matter of factly that that's what they did. But it seems almost an egomaniacal thing to do. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's just kind of weird that they did that. Although it somehow sounds almost Japanese as well. Yeah, it does. And then there was a few people I've, I don't know the facts, but I have heard of people who were having children in the camp naming their kids Tashmi in honor of it as a sign of, I don't know what that would be a sign of. Hmm. 
gratitude in a mixed way, or I'm not sure. Anyways. Well, people often name af- kids after where they're from. I suppose, but it, it reminded me of, like, communism and naming your kid Lenin backwards, so Nen, Nen, whatever. They did things like that. <laughs> <laughs> so it reminded me of that whole, like, authoritarian, scared, name your child after them, so you think, so it looks like you're behaving. Oh, an appeasement kind of thing. Yeah. They thought, they, oh, hmm. All right. Well, then they all had these things called self-sustaining camps. Uh, so about 1,500 people went to these places in the interior, and they had to prove to the RCMP that they could support themselves, and then they were given permits to go. So, for example, my, my mom's family, I guess, were well off enough initially that uh, my grandfather ran a taxi business so he had five cars that they sold off and uh, they ended up going to a place called Minto which is now underwater but these self-supporting places they worked in sawmills and other places like that to carry on with a little bit more freedom I guess. So and just to think about the camps as a whole the influx of Japanese on average for every townsperson was 4.3 to one a townsperson who was already there. So just, it would be, imagine living in these places and then these masses of Japanese or Japanese Canadians come and the towns just grow. The biggest one was Sandin, where there was only 20 people and then 933 Japanese, Japanese Canadians showed up. Like, that would blow my mind. <laughs> well, a lot of places wouldn't accept them as well. So part of the challenge of the Security Commission was to find areas where they could do this. Some places were just refusing. They were all freaking out, even though they hadn't met Japanese before, and they just didn't want them there. I think there were signs in Kelowna where they had specifically no Japs allowed. Wow. I didn't know that. I hope we're not slagging Kelowna. I think it was Kelowna. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so the BCSC had to set up education, at least for the younger kids, and there were about 4,000 children in elementary grades. In Manitoba, they were uh, merged into the existing system, and in Alberta, the uh, BCSC combined with the Alberta government to educate about 600 kids that were there. A lot of cases involved also training new grads, uh, Japanese-Canadians, who were trained to be helping teach these elementary school kids. Later on, the churches were also setting up things for high school and then doing it through correspondence in some cases. But there was some controversy about who wanted to be paying for those things, what they were responsible for, and the idea of actually building a school was rejected because they didn't want to be establishing these places on an ongoing basis. They were hoping that it was all just a temporary thing. So in the camps themselves, there were 2,700 um, students, so that was people of elementary grades. They were instated into nine school centers with 120 Japanese acting as teachers or assistants. And so that was in the camps. And then the self-sustaining camps, what they did was because those people had a little more freedom and they weren't as structured and the BC Security Commission basically wasn't as involved in them, they gave the self-sustaining camps a per capita grant to deal with the education of their own children and let them deal with it. So that's interesting because I guess that must have happened to my mom because she ended up going to Kamloops and did the oh. schoolgirl thing during high school. So she she would be billeting and also working. during. So this was during that time. And well, but with high school, they didn't... They didn't support. Oh, I see. So if so your mom was in high school, that was your pa- her parents looking yeah. at figuring out how to educate her. Yeah, she had to work. Her. To, yeah, she had to work in this house, I guess, to cover 
her expenses or something. Wow. Yeah. So I guess a lot of, there was probably a lot of um, different things that people did to try and make sure their kids were educated. So do you want to talk about medical services? Medical services, yeah. So TB was still an issue, and uh, we won't go into all the medical issues related to that, but there was a sanatorium, meaning the one for taking care of that, not for people going crazy, I guess. (laughs) Uh, So they had 100 beds, and that was set up in New Denver, I believe, to house people with TB. And uh, at Tashmi, they also built a hospital with 50 beds. And in the Slocan areas, they had plans underway to build a 40-bed one, but I'm not sure what happened with that. I think it went through. This is that was those facts were taken from the report that was finished in oh, October night, the right. commission report okay. that was finished in forty two. So I'm sure they followed through on that. So all of these were built at the cost of the BC Security Commission and were staffed with Japanese doctors and nursing staff, with a few BC Security Commission hired medical staff who were put at the top and acted as administrators. I think I have a an aunt who was a nurse at, at the sanatorium in New Denver. Yeah? Yeah, and I think she met her husband there or something. So sometimes there are benefits. Sometimes it works out. So by October 1942, the re- relocation of the Japanese and Japanese-Canadians was complete. So that's quite an impressive accomplishment if you just think about operationally, managed to clear all these people out of the coast and uh, um, completely destroy a community. That was quite quite efficient as far as how they did that. The uh, BCSC officially dissolved in February of 1943, and then it was taken over by the Japanese division of the Department of Labor. So they were kind of carrying on where they left off. And uh, that was at that turnover point I was mentioning before about Mead giving the list of people who might not be appropriate. But uh, it's not clear whether they paid attention to that. So that is the BC Security Commission in a nutshell. The reason why we chose it is because uh, at the Nikkei Center, we talk about internment and people seem to be stuck on the notion of a policeman showing up at your door and saying, you have 24 hours to pack 150 pounds of items and you have to leave your house and you might not be able to come back. And so one of our goals is to make sure that we educate Canada as a whole to make sure this never happens again. And that's what usually sticks with people is that emotional response of having to leave your belongings and all your friends behind. But really what people should know is how these small steps set up by a government can lead to these things because it's more about not actually showing up at the door. That means it's too late. Like these things have already been in motion and they have been for quite some time. So it's looking at the signs way before that, like 10 steps back, these tiny little things like an order in council that's passed by the government is really what we should be concerned about. And, and, well, the whole idea of the War Measures Act, of, of giving them the, the power to make these decisions without actual parliamentary um, yeah. debate. And within that, there were decisions being made without, well, being pushed by certain individuals and various agendas. Now, there's no doubt that there was fear, and, and it's reasonable that because of the way Japan was behaving uh, in the Pacific, that the Japanese community would be some place you would look if, if you're looking for trouble, but then it's a separate issue to say that you therefore clear out everybody of, of Japanese race, as they, they call it. And so the decisions, the way that it happened over time, and the way people, in a sense, abdicate responsibility for the decisions they're making, certainly has relevance to the way things can happen these days as well. Yeah. 
I agree. So that is it. Thank you for tuning in to Sounds Japanese Canadian to me, our first episode. 